Hi, my name is Sam Williams, and welcome to episode number 162, and the final episode of this year of 2021 of May 60 Music Podcast, the Millennial Throwback Machine. First of all, I'd like to welcome all you to episode number 162 and the final episode of this year of 2021 of May 60 Music Podcast, The Millennial Throwback Machine. I'm Sam Williams, Zoom. For those of you who are just now discovering this podcast, either on the Apple Podcast app or on Stitcher or on iHeartRadio or on Google Play Music or on Spotify, and you're wondering, so what the heck is, I'm just giving you a brief description of what the show is all about. Okay, so I'm Sam Williams, and I'm a 26-year-old songwriter, sauce producer, but I'm also a 60 music fan slash expert slash nerd, and each week with this podcast, I take one song by one artist in the 60s, split the show in two parts. First part of the show, I talk about my opinion song and why I think it's so good, or why I think it sucks, and then do my own personal analysis on the arrangement of the song, which will include the chords and the lyrics, and the second part of the show, dig deep into the history behind that track. And that part of the show, I talk about who wrote the song, who produced it, where it was recorded, who were the studio musicians of the track, or the band members, um, the history behind them, and the history behind the songwriter that wrote the song, the songwriters that wrote the song, the producers that produced it, the artists that recorded it, and the history behind the label the song was released on, and the peak position song made up originally in Billboard Hot 100 charts when it first came out, where the studio of the song was located at, where it was located at, and uh, the year and month the song was released. All that is in the second part of the show. Now, before we went on this week's episode of the podcast, I just want to say, wow, this year is is almost over. This is my last episode of 2021. And, uh, you know, this year was kind of, you know, a, an interesting year for the podcast. Um, it was more the same sort of thing, just continuing on with the same sort of, you know, me doing a different 60 song each week and the occasional interview. But my life changed a lot this year. And that will definitely have an effect on the future of me doing this podcast. Um, I know I've mentioned this before on my show, but I'm not, I moved out technically, so I'm sort of in a weird spot where I need to make some money so that way I can survive living in LA. And, um, you know, and I'm just in a very weird spot, sort of half at my parents, half not. Um, cause that's where my studio is located at. So, um, you know, it, the, my life changed a lot this year and whether or not I like that change or if I, or if I don't, it just is what it is. I mean, you know, I just, I can't really do anything about that, about it now. So, um, with that being said, uh, you know, what's going to change for this particular, what in the future for this podcast is that. Um, I'm, I'm in a, I'm in a very tough spot where I'll need some, I will actually need, you know, to raise money for the show and I will need your guys' support and I'll need you guys to at least contribute to me, uh, you know, some, you know, doing this podcast because I'm at a point where if I don't make my next payment, which is in April for the show, um, I'm not sure if I'll be able to keep doing it. So if you re- if you really really love this podcast and you want me to keep doing it, then uh, please go support it. You know, at least for me financially, by buying some 
you know, uh, you know, merch from my store. Because I mean, to be honest with you, that would help out a lot. Because I, I only got, I only some a couple people bought something from my store, and I already got paid for that. So if you purchase some items from the store, that will help me out so much. Because you know, if I if I just if I if I get around like three hundred dollars, or even probably even less than that, then I'll be okay with me doing this podcast for the next year. Because um, I have a lot of cool stuff planned for you guys. I mean, before that even happens, I've got like two interviews I'm going to be doing probably next month. So, um, you know, a lot of cool stuff is going to happen with this podcast. But I just, I'm, I'm, at, I'm at a point in my life where I can't do this for free anymore, and I, I need, I'm going to need your support with uh, financial support with me doing the show. So. Um, if you're a random listener of this podcast, you love it and enjoy it, please consider buying some merch from my online Redbubble merch store. Um, if you're international, I'm not sure if you can do that, but if you're in, if you're in the U.S., I would love it if you could please, um, bu- you know, buy some merch items from my store because that will help me out a lot. Because, I, like I said, I only I don't someone only bought two things from my from the two stores that I have, and I already got paid for that. So. Um, that will definitely help me out as far as me being able to continue to do this podcast. Cause for a while I was fine. I didn't need financial support with me doing this podcast. Cause one, I didn't, didn't have to pay rent. And two, uh, this podcast platform, this hosting and distributing platform I've been using for a couple of years now is free. And now it's not now they're, now they're charging me for hosting and distributing the show. And, uh, it's, it's, you know, that's why I could definitely use your financial support right now. And if you guys care about the show, you love it. Um, you know, even if you are a boomer and you do, 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 I already know about a lot of this stuff, but especially if you're a millennial and you love all the music I've talked about on my show so far, and you want me to keep doing this and you really, really like a lot of this music and you, and you learned so much from me doing this podcast and please, you know, do contribute to it by, you know, buying a couple of things from the merch store um, you know, cause the more uh, that I, the more money I get from that, the better, uh, the better off I'll be as far as me being able to do this podcast. Um, so, um, but yeah, so that's kind of where I'm at right now with that. Um, you know, I'm just in dire financial straits cause you know, I'm, I'm not working right now. I need to pay and I'm paying rent and you know, I'm also, you know, this podcast platform is, is now charging me and I was going to try to switch to a different podcast platform like I said through anchor and that was and that was uh and that would have that that anchors free but at the same time I found out that I would lose all of my listener data that I would uh that I would uh you know I've accumulated so far from the over 100 episodes I've done of me doing this podcast so I can't afford to lose all my listener data that I've you know that I've earned so far from doing this podcast from all the hard blood, sweat, and tears work I put into doing the show, so um, I can't afford to do that, you know, lose any of those listener listener information data, like all the 25k listens I have right now, so, um, so yeah, that's kind of where I'm at right now with this podcast, um, you know, I mean, I might, I'm, I might look into uh, Apple Podcasts, charging people, be doing a subscription thing, and I, I would hate to do that to you guys, and I know that, you know, it's kind of weird because a lot of this stuff is very easy to find on the internet for free. So I don't know if I'm going to do that. But at the same time, uh, I'm, you know, it's push comes to sub and I'm kind of in desperate times call for desperate measures. I mean, I might might do that. I mean, I hope that you guys will continue to listen to that if I have to charge 
a subscription for you, for you guys to listen to on Apple Podcasts. I mean, I'll look into that. But again, um, you know, uh, I just really need some financial support for this podcast. So I definitely appreciate if you guys help me out with that. But like I said before, um, in the new year, I've got the two new interviews, Brooks Arthur and uh, the couple guys from 19 Frucum Company. Those are very, very exciting. I can't wait to do those. Definitely next month. It's going to come a lot sooner than you think. So um, let's, and while we're at it, let's just get started with uh, the last episode of this year, shall we? Okay, let's get started in this week's song, shall we? All right. So, um, you know, it's it, I mentioned this before on my podcast, but sometimes... Um, I try not to, you know, I, I talk about music that was recorded 56 years ago. So, um, you know, it's, it's, it's sometimes, you know, a lot of times when I do this podcast, I try to talk about it in the most positive way possible. And I try not to be very negative about me talking about this music. But, and you know, with that being said, I try not to turn this podcast into a thing where every week if someone dies from this era, I, I, I make an announcement saying that they passed away. Because, you know, that that's sort of the sad part about a lot of this music. It's great. It's amazing. I love it so much. But the sad part about this music is that it was recorded 50, 60 years ago. And a lot of these people that were making this music are not alive right now. Um, but again, that adds to the importance of me even doing this podcast in the first place and you know keep me keeping this music alive for future generations after all these people who grew up you know who grew up not only grew up listening to this music but the people who made the music pass away someone's got to keep their music alive for future generations and i figured that person might just just will probably have to be me you know because i don't see a whole lot of other millennials or gen z's really doing this so um but with that being said uh there were some recent passings that i didn't acknowledge because like i said i don't really I try to keep this podcast positive. I don't try to, you know, be, you know, do it in sort of a negative way. But there were some passings recently. One of them actually was kind of interesting for me because, uh, you know, I, I did this group earlier this year, right? And I talked about them. And I saw their last ever show they ever did together, period. It was down to two surviving original members until this month. And I saw them perform their very last show they ever did together with the two surviving original members. And then like three or four weeks later, one of them died. So that was really cool for me to see their very, very last show they ever did together as a group, um, you know, performing. I mean, no one knew it. No one knew, it. No one knew that at that time. But it was cool just for me to witness that and get to watch um, that um, that show and see it in person and to hear him sing just one more time before he passed away, uh, you know, uh, early earlier this month. So it was cool seeing that show, and I and I know that I I, per, I personally don't have too many experiences where I saw an artist from back then and now they're gone. I have a couple, but that's just the one most recent one that I can think of off the top of my head. I saw Chad and Jeremy too, and one of them passed away recently. Uh, so. Um, I do have a couple experiences with that, but, um, you know, so this is now the thing is, is that I already did this group before, right? So I'm not going to go into their too much in their history again, but I thought to myself, how could I pay tribute to him? Even, even though I've already done this group? Well, I could do a song that he wrote that he actually didn't record with the group that he was in. Um, he wrote the song himself before he joined the group. 
and the group never recorded it. And I'll talk more about that later on this episode. But um, I'm going to do this song as a tribute to him. And it's going to be, you know, he just passed away recently. So I thought, okay, maybe I should do a song by him. But this is a song that he wrote. A lot of the songs he recorded with the group are using Ethan Wright. And, uh, you know, he did write some uh, album cuts, you know, with the group, but not n- no singles, just just album cuts. I mean, he wrote a B-side to a single, but that that was about it. Um, you know, so he mo- mostly wrote album cuts for this group. So this is one of the songs that he didn't record with the group that he was in, but another group recorded and had a huge hit with it. You might know this song. You might not. Um, depending on how old you are, if you're a baby boomer, of course you know the song. But if you're a millennial, probably not. You know, and and which is cool because you're about to hear something really, really great you've never heard before. And uh, this is an amazing song. It's an interesting one. This is going to be an interesting one to sort of break down and talk about. Um, it's definitely a departure stylistically from the last song we talked about on my podcast, but still really, really great. And it'd be worth to sort of break down and talk about what's going on here as far as the arrangement and the music and the lyrics is concerned. But it's a very it's it's a fantastically well written song, and it's 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 just it's just beautiful, and the vocals amazing. And again, kind of continuing on last week because you know last week's theme because the lead singer of the song definitely went on later went on to have a huge career in the seventies and eighties. But for now, you know she was kind of in the shadows, but she would eventually become huge. But this is just where she's at right now with this particular group. But anyways, so in tribute to the to um, the the person that just passed away, and by the way, that person was Michael Nesmith. This is one of his songs, and he didn't record this with the group that he was in, the Monkees. But this was recorded by someone, another group that had a huge hit with it, and probably gave him some much needed financial assistance for him. Uh, you know, when when the song became a hit, because that you know that mailbox money must have probably you know he probably liked that a lot. But anyways, that's besides the point. Okay, so the song came out in September 1967. It's by a group called the Stone Ponies. The name of the song is called Different Drum. Wow. This is a really beautiful, pretty song. And it's an interesting one. It's not your typical love song. Uh, it's 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 really it's not it's weird. I mean, for a love song, this is just as strange as it gets, but it's really it's a good the arrangement's great and the, it's just a fantastically you know, the musicianship on this record is definitely up to stuff for sure. And today we're going to talk about what makes a song so great and so interesting, but musically and lyrically. But first, let's dive into the music. Okay, so let's take a really good look at what's going on here as far as the arrangement of the song is concerned. Because I don't know if you've noticed this by now, just from listening to this song, if you if you have listened to it yet. But the song has an arrangement that it, it, it reminds you of another genre of music besides 60s pop. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't sound like a typical 60s pop song. It doesn't sound very Motown-y. It doesn't sound very rocky. It sounds very pop. 
and it's it's just but it just doesn't remind you of music from the 60s in fact it kind of reminds you of music from the 1700s or maybe even the 1600s and what i mean by this is that the song this song itself has a super uh classical sound yes um you know it's so interesting cuz when you when you listen to music nowadays you know pop music in today's world you don't think of classical music you don't hear any classical elements in a lot of today's pop music well i'm about to teach you about a genre of music that you may not be familiar with you know if you're a millennial or gen z but this was huge in the late 60s and it was a genre of music that uh, you know, it, it didn't, it didn't, this doesn't surprise me at all when it comes to listening to this kind of music, but, you know, as to how classical music wound up in the minds of a lot of, you know, songwriters and producers and arrangers at that time. But, um, you know, this genre of music I'm talking about, which fuses classical elements with typical pop rock chord structures and, and, you know, chord, chord progressions, pop rock chord progressions and song structures and you know, very melodic, very classical elements of, you know, music from that time, uh, from the, you know, 1600s, 1700s. What I'm talking about is Baroque pop. Um, you know, and this is really one, this is the perfect meld of classical music and and pop. Because you've got the elements of classical, right? you got very, very sophisticated uh, string arrangements. You know, very, very, like, you know, violins, violas, cellos, the whole nine yards. You've got that... You know the 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 string arrange the strings the string players are playing these very melodic string lines that complement the lead vocal a lot, but then you've got other things happening like the harpsichord. Now, if you're listening to this and you're like, "What the heck is a harpsichord?" Well, a harpsichord was one of the oldest. It's an extremely old keyboard instrument that dates back thousands of, like hundreds and you know hundreds of years. Um, you know, when, when you think, when, when you, when you, tr when you think of harpsichords, a lot of times you imagine, uh, you know, the, the middle ages with, you know, in England, uh, you imagine, uh, knights and kings and queens and that whole era of, you know, knighthood and brotherhood and all that sort of, you know, the, you know, the, the middle ages, um, you know, that you, you, th you know, that's, har that's how old harpsichords are. And you know, for and coming up, and even you know, but after that, during the ages of classical music, I mean, harpsichords were. I think, in fact, I think harpsichords might have predated pianos. That's how old they are, you know. Um, you know, harpsichords were these these. They are a very unique sounding instrument because, you know, they kind of sound like a harp except they're a piano. And you could, but you could, you know, the sounds you can get out of, out of a harpsichord sound just like a harp except they were a keyboard instrument. Now, I'm not an expert when it comes to harpsichords, but you could probably do some research on them. But again, they were meant to sound like a harp, but they were but they were basically designed just like a keyboard, just like a piano, um, you know, and uh, they were very big and they were huge. And they just have and whenever whenever you hear a harpsichord, it, your mind automatically goes to classical music. And that's what you're hearing in the song. And what's really, really cool about this track, and this is why I'm a big fan of it, is the is the mix between the harpsichord and this really cool single note guitar pattern that's happening in this song, you know, to complement the harpsichord part. And it sounds very classical, too. I mean, they could have done that on a flamenco acoustic guitar, like a classical acoustic guitar. That might have been how they recorded that part. It just sounds, it has that vibe. It totally has that vibe. 
you know, and again, like this is this is the classical. The in fact, what one of my favorite parts of the song is that is that break before we get to the last bridge of the song when that when the harpsichord does that solo. That is so classical. I mean, that might have been the might as well have been Bach or Beethoven or, you know, that 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 was one thousand percent that that classical sound that we think of, you know, from the Middle Ages. That that's that's so it right there. You know, and this is, and, and it was sort of a trend back in the 60s, people, you know, but it doesn't, it doesn't surprise me because a lot of these, you know, even the Motown songwriters and even like, you know, uh, Jerry Lieber, Mike Sawyer, they were hugely, they were big classical guys. I mean, a lot of classical music did seep itself into a lot of the 60s stuff. I mean, it's very melodic and pretty simple. Most classical music was very simple. And this is a very simple song, just simple chord changes, nothing too complicated, very, very, you know, just nothing, nothing too crazy. I mean, literally have one, three, four, five. That is the chorus. And then the chorus, I mean, the bridge, you got four, five, and then, and then you got four, five, one, and then four, five again, and then the, and the one, three, and the six, and then, you know, and then, and then it goes back to the, to the one, and then, and then they do something kind of interesting in the, in the bridge. They go to, um, you know, a secondary dominant, and then they go the, they go the two minor, and then, you know, it's just, there's nothing crazy about this song as far as uh you know the the chord change is concerned but one interesting part about it is actually is the is the cut time way they play the chord changes because they do play each chord you know in cut time so it's like one two each beat each chord is is two beats basically and uh you know it's and that's really cool because that's that's a very classical thing too playing you know cut time you know like basically doing songs in two four it's like you have each chord lasts for two beats that's a very classical thing too and they do that in this song as well and that's really cool and uh, again this song is very classical and the drums are not too crazy on this either i mean they're powerful but you know they're just really laid back nothing too insane because really the main parts of the song that you really want to look for are the harpsichord and that classic guitar line that the melding of those two parts together the beautiful harpsichord part in the song and that really cool classical pan uh classical guitar playing to contradict that is that's what makes the song that's the beauty of this and the string arrangement too the string arrangement is absolutely gorgeous i mean that's just beautiful i love that part of that song too that's really really cool um but anyways so that's that that's about does as far as the range of the song is concerned. Again, this song is an ABA, so it's technically not a first chorus. So that's something we haven't talked about in a while. But again, ABA songs were big in the 30s and 40s. But the song is definitely a ABA song. And, uh, you know, and, and it's interesting because I'll talk about this in a few minutes. But the song wasn't originally a classical song. It was very, very different. Um, but I'll talk about that in a few minutes. But now let's get into the song's lyrics. Okay, so what's so interesting about the song lyrically? This is not your typical like love song. And it's not even a breakup song. It's a rejection song. And that's kind of interesting to think about it cuz there's not too many other rejection songs out there. And I don't know, the fact that the girl's singing the song, it kind of makes sense because I feel like women do more rejecting than guys do. I mean, not that guys reject girls all the time, but I feel like it's it's fitting that a girl is singing the song because I feel like women in general do 90% of the rejecting of guys versus guys rejecting girls. I mean, guys reject girls all the time, but I don't know. I feel like it makes sense that a woman is singing the song. But the weird part about this song is that she's rejecting him not because she's not interested in him romantically or who knows, maybe even sexually, but 
she's rejecting him because she doesn't want to be tied down to him only. And that and you can hear that immediately in the bridge, right? Because she literally sings, don't get me wrong. It's not that I knock you. It's just that I'm not in the market for a boy who wants to love only me. Think about that for a minute. Because this was kind of in the in the later part of the 60s when people were starting to experiment with polyamorous relationships. This was in the 50s when people were getting married and having kids and only sticking to one person only. This was sort of in the free love time when people didn't want to do be with just one person only. So it all kind of makes sense that this, you know, lyrics like this would become popular in 1967, 68 during the free love movement because, you know, and and for me, the song is very relatable, even though I'm not a girl, I'm a guy, but still, you know, it's one of those things where it's like, I can relate to this because I don't necessarily want one girlfriend right now. I want to have fun, you know, do like friends with benefits with a couple of different girls. And that's what she is saying to this guy in the song. She's basically saying, look, you know, don't get me wrong. It's not that I'm not attracted to you. It's not that I don't like you. It's just that I don't want to I don't want to be with you only forever. And that's it. You know, and it's not, you know, she's she's almost saying, like, don't take it personally. It's not that I'm not interested. You know, all she what she's saying is that she wants she's not ready for someone else to freaking tie her down and chain her down and just, you know, and only be, only be with with her for forever, or you know, she doesn't want to chain herself down to one guy forever, and that's what she's basically saying in the bridge, you know, and that's kind of the 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 theme of the lyrics in the song, and and she and it's funny because you can tell that they're not on the same page when it comes to that. The guy wants her only, and that's it. The guy wants her, you know, for for himself and nobody else. But the girl wants to you know, experiment with other guys and potentially have friends with benefits with other guys. And that's sort of the theme, the underlying theme of the song's lyrics, because, you know, you and I travel to the beat of a different drum. And that's that basically means that they're not on the same page. They're completely on separate plants as far as what they both want. The guy wants the girl for himself and that's it. And he doesn't. The girl doesn't want. The guy doesn't want the girl to anybody else besides him. And the girl wanted to experiment with different with different guys. And it's funny because this is such like a. It's it, you think about it as more the opposite. The, the 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 guy wants to, you know, experiment with different girls, but the girl wants the guy for himself. I mean, it's just the whole reverse psychology, you know, aspect of these lyrics is so great. I mean, that's what makes a song so good. And yet. It could you could literally it could be sung right now. I mean, this could happen in twenty twenty one. I mean, that's how relatable these lyrics are. And look, I mean, you know, having casual relationships right now might be difficult because of the virus that's still going around, you know. Um, but if you know the person, it can be safer, you know, versus if you don't know the other person. But that's but it's just so interesting because. You know, I can totally relate to the singer to the song, even though I'm not a girl. But the other interesting part about the song is that it's, uh, you know, originally it was sung by a guy, and I'll get into that in a few minutes. But I, I love, you know, songs like this that are just are that just so different. They're not like, you know, they're 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 not like the same old cliche breakup love song, 
you know, over and over and over in the same, you know, on love you and you'll you please love me forever. Like, don't, don't be with anyone else except for me. Don't even say goodbye for digital death was part. I mean, there's so many songs that are like that or you don't love me anymore. I mean, this is a rejection song, but it's a really, really interesting one because it uses the analogy of traveling of two people not being on the same page with each other, not and not, you know, being in agreement with each other. And you and the analogy is using with the metaphor of traveling both. They're both traveling to the beat of a different drum. You know, and that's a really cool thing because you don't really hear that phrase anymore in today's world. But it's an old phrase that basically meant that two different people are not on the same page and they think differently. And that's sort of the beauty of today's world. A lot of people don't think the same way. And that's sort of what's really so cool about the song. It's very relatable, even if you didn't grow up in this era and you're in your, in your 90s kid or a two, 2000s kid. You know, you never heard this song before. You'll definitely be able to relate to it, even if you've uh, even if you weren't alive in the 60s. But this that's a really cool part about the song. It's great. I love songs like this that are very unique and not and they're, they're derived and they're not and they're and they're and they're not inclu- what's not included is all the typical cliches you know, um, they're deprived of all that. It's they're very, very unique, and that's what's so great about this song. And yeah, it's it's super cool. I mean, that lyrical concept is amazing. You know, and you can tell it was it was sung originally by um, a guy because you know the girl sings, "I ain't saying you ain't pretty," and you know, he <laughs> sounds she sounds like she's she's talking to another girl. But no, I mean that's how you can tell the song is originally written by a dude, and that's kind of interesting because. It, it song makes more sense when it's sung by a girl, but when it's sung by a guy, I'm like, whoa, this guy must have gotten hit up by a lot of girls if he's in a position to reject some. I mean, <laughs> I mean, that's, you know, that that kind of goes through my mind whenever I listen to the song. And uh, but it's a really great song. And uh, the melody is gorgeous. And, you know, by the way, the song does have upright bass in it. There's no elect- like electric bass on this song. It's upright bass. And that's kind of cool. And that adds the classical feel to the song. Let's talk about the history behind it now. Okay, so now we're going to talk about the history behind this song. And uh, there's going to be a couple different components here. So I'm going to try to my best to mesh those two things together. But the one thing I want you to keep in mind about this song is that it did go through a metamorphosis here. Um, because when you listen to this song, there's a lot of classical elements in the song, right? And you would think that the song started out with a closer to Baroque pop arrangement. And that's what it was originally. And the fact of the matter is that cannot be further from the truth. The song was not ever meant to be a classical Baroque pop song. Um, in fact, it had a completely different arrangement altogether. And, and that shows itself from the songwriter that wrote the song. And the the people that rec- the the group that recorded it originally before the Stone Ponies did it, and that's kind of an interesting thing because, you know, it just it just goes to show you how much an arrangement can change a song. You know, an arrangement can you know a song could have the exact same chords, the exact same melody, and the exact same lyric, and you know it could it just but the arrangement, the tempo, the instrumentation. Um, you know, the uh, everything like the arrangement for a song, you know, can change w- the rhythm. I mean, the, t- the, the you know, every th- the arrangement of the song can dramatically change the feel for it. And I'm going to show you that in just a few minutes. But first, let's talk about the guy who wrote the song. So Michael Nesmith passed away um, a couple weeks ago. And I, I when I did the monkeys in the podcast, I talked a little bit on how there was some friction between 
himself and the group and uh, you know, and the monkeys and the, the big wigs of Screen Gems, you know, Bob Rafelson, Burr Schneider, um, because he was arguably the only really talented, very real musician in the group. I mean, Peter Tork was obviously crazy talented as a bass player and piano player, and he could play really, really well. But Michael Nesmith had something that the other people in the group really didn't have at that point, and especially very early on. He was the only guy who was a very serious songwriter. And the reason why there was such a huge friction between him and the rest of the group was because of his background as a, as a musician. Um, because the thing is, is that, you know, I, I think I, I, I touched on this a little bit when I did the monkeys, but, you know, Michael Nesmith had a country and blues background as a, as a, as a musician, country bluegrass. That was his thing. You know, he, he was a country and bluegrass musician to the core. He loved that acoustic, you know, folk hoot and anything. And that was his thing. I mean, he grew up in Texas you know, where that music was very, very big. I mean, he, he probably grew up listening to Bob Wills and Texas Playboys. That country bluegrass sound was ingrained into his psyche at a very young, early age. And I don't know if you've noticed this by now, but the monkeys didn't, none of the monkeys' music really had that sound to it. It was very rock and roll, very, you know, mid-60s, you know, almost, you know, kind of British invasion sounding. So, you know, I mean, he was very fortunate to at least been able to at least write a couple album cuts for the monkeys. But there was this friction where, you know, he thought what he thought would become successful songs were huge hits. The producers were like, mm, we don't agree with you. And that's sort of the thing that happened. That was the sort of thing he had to battle with when he was, you know, in the monkeys and being a producer and a writer for for them for that show. You know, because what he thought were potential big potential hit songs a lot of times the monkey the monkey the head the, the head the powers that be at at uh, at at uh, screen gems you know didn't agree with him you know they thought that you know these other songwriters are writing other songs for the monkeys like goffin and king and tommy boyce and bobby hart he thought that those and even like you know uh carol bayer sager neil zadaka phil mitch margo jason Eagle, hank mendris all these other you know, House Green Gems writers who were writing in New York City in, in the in, in 1650 Broadway, they thought that they their 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 songs were a lot better than what Michael Nez was contributing for the group. And there was definitely a friction there, especially with Don Kirshner. Because Don Kirshner was a street smart New York guy who knew a hit song when he heard it, even though he couldn't play an instrument, couldn't sing a note. But Michael Nesmith was a very serious musician who with a country in bluegrass background and what he thought were hits, you know, the again the group didn't really, you know, the powers it be at um at us at Chris Screen Gems didn't agree with him. And this is a classic example of that, because he wrote this song before he joined the monkeys in nineteen sixty four, and I think he actually did it first. And um, you know, the thing is is that when he pitched it to the heads of CBS, I mean sorry, Screen Gems uh, you know, they, you know, the thing is that they didn't agree with him. They thought they thought the song didn't have any hit potential. They didn't they didn't want they didn't you know, they want nothing to do with the song. They're like, you know, this, the, you know, this is a great song. But it doesn't sound like a hit. Sorry, we don't want the monkeys to record this. So that's very, very interesting to think about that, you know, that he 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 wrote the song before he joined the monkeys and he offered to, to the screen drums producers and they did not like it and they did not want to record it. That's very, very fascinating. So that's something to keep in mind about this group. I mean, you know, I mean, again, it was there's a friction going on here between himself and the producers of this group and uh, of the, of the monkeys, the, the t people made a TV show. 
And you know, and that's and he, again, it was like he just you know, there was there was like he was a, he was a huge disagreement between the two. And I mean, he was already financially set anyways because his mom invented liquid paper, whiteout. But I mean, that's a whole other story. But um, yeah, so he wrote the song before the monkeys, right? And he. And, you know, and this is this is he actually wrote this song when he was kind of just, you know, a hoot nanny folk blue country bluegrass musician in Texas, you know, trying to make it as a musician at that time. And he wrote in 1964. And he and the, and the, and the, and the thing is, is that, um, you know, in fact, when it when the, the other interesting thing about this song is that, um, you know, it, it, you know, it was uh, he never this this is kind of interesting because a lot of people think that. Um, Michael Nesmith wrote this about his own life, but the other, but the other interesting thing about this is that he 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 wasn't talking about himself. He wasn't trying to get into a casual relationship with a girl. Like he actually was. He he just got married and he was pregnant. So the lyrics were never personal. I'm like what? <laughs> the uh, the song has kind of a personal sound to, it, especially when you hear his version of it. it sounds like he was, you know, he was kind of talking about. Uh, you know, you know him, him himself in the song, but no, I mean, you know, he was, it was, it was, the, you know, he was, it was basically he wasn't really writing it for uh, for himself. You know, he was just sort of using his imagination. So he was, he he knew a group called the Green Bear Boys, and he played the song to John Harold that group, and they the next year they actually, uh, you know, basically, um, you know, they record it on their album. I'm gonna play that version for you in a minute. But anyways, um, it's funny because like this almost became a monkey song because, the, the, you know, he sn- actually snuck in this song when he was when they were during an episode of a TV show they were doing where he was doing like and the show is called the episode is called Too Many Girls. And, um, you know, he, he was doing the he, there was doing this comedy with this guy named Billy Roy Hodstetter. And, you know, he was trying to beat him or trying to act like him. And he sn- sang a little bit of the song in the show. So. You know, he really wanted the monkeys to record this, but the but the producers wouldn't let him. So that's kind of interesting to think about it. I mean, this could have been a monkey song, but it just just wasn't meant to be. So, but he snuck it in the TV show, and there's actual there's you know it's in the episode of one of those shows. You can watch the the whole monkeys all the episodes of the show on YouTube, so you can probably see this. But that's kind of interesting to think about. Um, but yeah, so. Um, before we get into the history behind um, Linda Ronstadt, um, so, oh, I just spoiled something for you. Uh, you know, uh, you know, I <laughs> okay. So yeah, so there was there was a there was a the the singer of the Stone Ponies was someone who later grew on out of huge success as a big big singer in the early, late seventies and mid seventies. And her name was Linda Ronstadt, and she was a member of this group, the Stone Ponies, who sang the song "Different Drum," but. I'll get into that in a minute. From let's just let's just play the original version, a little bit of that, just to see what it sounds like. Wow. Talk about a completely different song from 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 the from the hit version to the original. Holy shit. This is barely recognizable. And the reason for this being is because originally it was a country bluegrass song. Yes, 
That's what the song was originally. It had it it had all the ingredients to a stereotypical country bluegrass song. It had mandolin. It had banjo. It had fiddle. It had acoustic guitar. It, it you know it you know it had every single ingredient you can think of when it comes to bluegrass music. That's what it was originally. It was a freaking bluegrass song. And it's just mind-blowing to think that it went from being a bluegrass song to a classical Baroque pop song. How the heck did that happen? I mean, were they going to do it like this originally when they were recording it? But let's talk about that now, because holy shit. That just proves to you how just the, the metamorphosis of songs and how, you know, you, you literally just change out the instrumentation, change out the rhythm, add something to it. And then, you know, it becomes a completely different song, even though it's still the same song. As far as the chord changes, the lyrics, the melody, it's all the same, but the the instrumentation, the rhythm is different. You know, you know, the tempo is different. I mean, the 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 the, the hit version was so much more sped up compared to the original. I mean, there's just so much different going on here. Well, let's dive into the history behind the Stone Ponies now, because we gotta talk about that. Because I <laughs> I kind of spoiled something for you in in the beginning of this episode, but now let's talk about that for a minute. So yes, continuing on with last week's episode of me doing the American Breed, talking about how Al Siner and Kevin Murray from the American Breed later went on to form Rufus and play on Tell Me Something Good. Um, now we're talking about the Stone Ponies, which had a very, very young Linda Ronstadt. This is before she started working with Peter Asher. This is before all of her massive success doing those classic, you know, those great versions of those cover songs in the 70s. This is before all that, before big hits in the '80s. I mean, this was, this was, this was, this was very, very early in the Ronstadt when she was just in her early twenties, because this was her first group she was in, and she was in it with a couple guys. The other one was named Bobby Kimmel. The other was the other guy was Kenny Edwards, and there was three of them. It was Linda Ronstadt, Bobby Kimmel, and Kenny Edwards. Bobby Kimmel played rhythm guitar and sang, and Kenny Edwards played lead guitar. So it was a trio, right? And that they were they were calling themselves the Stone Ponies. How do they meet? Where do they come from? Well. Originally, um, Linda Ronstadt, uh, you know, were they met each other in Arizona. Um, but uh, Linda first met Bobby when they were playing gigs together in in, in around in and around Tucson, and uh, they were they were playing with uh, you know Linda Ronstadt's older brother Peter and older sister Susie. And if you're wondering who Susan Ronstadt is, uh, you know, uh, I, I think think she had a connection with Jimmy Webb. I think there's a there's a connection there. Um, I'll talk more about that when when I do Jimmy Webb, but I haven't done Jimmy Webb in a while. I'll say that for another episode next year. But anyways, um, you know they they played together three Ron stats with Bobby Kimmel, and you know they played a local band with Richard Saltis, and they originally called themselves the New Union Ramblers. So they were doing pretty pretty folksy stuff, and Kimmel, you know, he was six years older than than Linda. And they were and they were impressed by how good she was as a singer, as, and she was and she was only fourteen years old. And they they moved to Southern California in nineteen sixty one, and basically, uh, you know, uh, they they you know they they worked regular they you know they they wrote songs regularly in Linda and Bobby Kimmel, and all when she was going you know they wrote the songs together when they were going to high school together, Catalina High, and uh, basically you know Kimmel had met and became friends with Kenny Edwards. Shortly before Linda came to LA in 1961, and basically they came became a trio and started writing folk songs, folk rock songs together. In December in 64, and then after you know they dropped out of Catalina High School in Tucson, um, you know they 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 uh, they completed a semester at University of Arizona, 
and they all decided to move to Los Angeles together and form a band. And uh, it, originally, it was going to be five people. They were going to have an electric auto harp and a girl singer, and you know, and they were, and they thought they were the the first, you know, the first group to do that. But then, Love and Spoonful later came out, and they 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 announced you they were lined up with electric auto harp, and they 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 had success before uh, um, the the Stone Ponies did that. So that's pretty amazing, and. Uh, they they call them, they they change their names to Stone Bonies and they call themselves that after a song by uh, a, a Delta blues singer named Charlie Patton called the Stone Pony Blues. It's funny. <laughs> There's so many parallels between them and Love and Spoonful. It's not even funny because Love and Spoonful named themselves after the Mississippi John Hurt song. You know, I want to see a baby by Love and Spoonful. I mean, they they named themselves after a Delta blues song too, which is crazy. I mean, there are so many parallels between them, Love and Spoonful. God, there's just I, I, you know, I can make so many comparisons. I mean, you know, what happened was that they just dis- they were discovered at a soul food restaurant called Olivia's in Ocean Park, basically right in between Venice and Santa Monica, and uh, you know, basically that's the Doors were playing there too. So that's how, that's how famous the club was, and uh, they and they basically they did the Johnny O's song so far and then recorded it. And uh, Mike Herb, who was affiliated with Mercury at the time, produced those sessions. And uh, you know, they, and basically, they want he wanted to change his name. The sig- they wanted to change the group's name to Signets, but they decided not to do that. And they they wanted he wanted to record surf music, but like, no, we're a folk rock group. We're not doing that. And uh, you know, and here's the thing: is that when 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 they performed around town, Linda Ronson performed with bare feet. And uh, they worked at the uh, the they they played so many gigs with at the, with a troubadour doing the whole California folk thing. I mean, they're probably associated with the men who later we went on to become association. And uh, they opened up for Odette and Oscar Brown Jr. So I mean, they, they you know, and they, and and they and they appeared at the Insomniac in Hermosa Beach, which is where they played with uh, the Chambers Brothers and the Bitter End and Grinchville's in New York. So they were getting around really as a folk trio. And um, when they were playing, when they were playing those gigs with the Turbidor, uh, Herb Cohen, their first manager, uh, basically said, "Hey, you know, you guys sound great, but we can, we can. I love to record Linda Ronstadt, but we don't. I don't know if the if the rest of you guys can cut in the recording studio. Um, I, I just just doesn't just doesn't seem like you guys could, you know, do do well in the recording studio. And that's when things started to sipper off the group. It was like, wait a minute." Um, we're a trio. We we play and sing together. Why are you saying I can't? I can record, but these guys can't. And that's when things started to taper off for a bit. That's when that was when things started to you know go south for them. So they broke up briefly, and then basically, uh, you know, the thing is that you know Frank uh, Herb Cohen tried to connect with Linda Ronstadt to do a, to do a demo with Frank Zappa and with Jack Nisi, but nothing ever happened with them. Nothing just. That you know, nothing, there was no hit at, that came out of uh, her doing something to Frank Zappa. So that, unfortunately, that fizzled out. So they realized, okay, we kind of got to get back together. We're we know we were we were good as a trio. Let's try to get back together. Okay, and this is when things start to happen because then, that's when they get signed. Uh, you know, Linda, Kenny, and Bobby, uh, Kenny Edwards, and Bobby Kimmel. That's when they get introduced. To Nick Vinay, and that's when they get signed to Capitol Records after Nick Vinay saw them at the Troubadour. And this was in the summer of 1966. So this is when things started to happen for him. Now let's get into how different drum came about. So the the the, the ongoing the friction between 
Bob, Bobby Kimmel, Kenny Edwards being included in the recording studio of a lot of these songs was was the reason the reason why they were kind of not being really included in a lot of uh, the production for a lot of these recordings is the reason why the group broke up because when they when Nick Vinay signed McCapital Records, um, he had other ideas for the for for a lot of their songs. Um, you know, granted they wrote a lot of original songs as album cuts, but their first couple albums, I mean, you know, they just didn't sell very well. I mean, they weren't hit albums. So, you know, they broke up because of the of the uh, the 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 non-commercial success of their their first couple albums. You know, again, they broke up again. And, you know, the thing is, is that they, you know, they, they tried to get back together, you know, and, and do more. I mean, the first album, Stone Ponies, didn't really do anything. And the second album, Evergreen Volume 2, was when, you know, that's that's basically when uh, they, they tried to, uh, you know, get back, group regroup and actually play together as a group. And the thing is, is that, you know, when you listen to the original recording of Different Drum by the Green Bear Boys... Um, you know, originally, uh, you know, they, they wanted to do it just like the Green Rare Boys, um, you know, and, and that's how they, the, the first recording they did was just like that. It was very acoustic, very sort of that folk bluegrass kind of a thing. But then Nick Finney is like, oh, no, this is not going to work. We need to redo this song. We need I need there needs to be a totally new arrangement with this record. And none of you guys are going to be included in this. I'm gonna have uh, my one of my Wrecking Crew guys come up in the really cool Baroque pop arrangement for this, and you guys are not gonna be included in, in the original recording or in the next version of the song. I want this to just just be Lynn in the studio with my guy, you know, making the arrangement, and his, you know, he's gonna contract the session. He's gonna arrange the strings and do the whole arrangement from top to bottom, and he's gonna use his players that he wants for a session. And that's the single version of Different Drum that came out. Originally, it had Jimmy Bond and Upright Bass doing the arrangement, Al Viola on guitar, Don Randy on harpsichord, Jim Gordon on drums, and that and and check this out, um, you know, I, there there was one version of uh of the Stone Ponies which had members of a, a group that would later go on to uh, become the Eagles, and on the original recording of Different Drum, the hit version, there's actually a version with um. Uh, with uh, Burning Layden. And Burning Layden will later run on to form uh, the Eagles. And, you know, it, it, you know he did, but that was the first group that he was in before the Eagles even happened. So basically, uh, you know, it was that was the, the single version. Oh, and he, this is something kind of cool. They, they, they did it at Capitol Studios, right? That was, you know, on, on Vine Street, the world-famous Capitol Recording Studios. That was where they recorded the song. Um, they didn't, the, the, they, they, the, literally the, the single version that came out was take number two and Don Randy came up with that whole really cool harpsichord spot, uh, harpsichord part on the spot. That was Don Randy playing that. Can you believe that a session musician made up that whole thing on the spot? That's just goes to show you how much freedom LA musician has with creating their own parts and records and they didn't always have to stick with the arrangements written down by the arrangers or the, or the music copies. They can just, a lot of times they can just make up some of the craziest shit on the planet. And Don Rainey made up that whole harpsicle part in that record. That's amazing. I love that. That is so cool. 
And of course, Nick Vinay produced a session. And they, and here's the thing. So even though it was studio musicians playing on the song, the record still came out under the name Still Ponies. And if and and it did have a feature in credit, Still Ponies featuring Leonard Ronstadt. But that was their very first hit record as an artist. And it, and it, and it and it and it got into the twenties in, in December nineteen sixty seven. It became a huge hit. And Michael Nesbitt's very first hit cut as a songwriter. I mean, you know, as a you know. So that was really cool, you know. As as you know, I mean, he wrote the B side "The Girl Knew from Somewhere," which is in the the B side a little bit, a little bit, a little bit of me, a little bit of you, which was Monkey's first hit, not the first single, but like you know, th- that was the first. "The Girl I Knew from Somewhere" was the first Monkey song featuring all the members of the band playing on the session. There was no studio musicians, so yeah, there was that. But that was a B side, not an A side. This this was an A side single that was a huge. That this became a very good financial. Uh, booster for Michael Nesmith because this was a very big hit song that he wrote, um, you know, and uh, and and it, it, again, it, it basically, it 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 was a hit in the in the in the winter time '97. So I mean, it was a very very big hit song, and uh, but the fact that um the thing is is that you know it, the the fact that they weren't allowed to play on uh you know their own their own records, the thing is is that um you know the the group. It kind of felt like the record company wanted, they recognized the star power of Linda Ronstadt, and they wanted to push her. They didn't really care about Kenny or Bobby, really. They wanted Linda Ronstadt to be the main star. So a lot of times what happened was that when, when you know, like when Different Drum came out, if it was, it, was the, it was literally the Stone Ponies in small print featuring Linda Ronstadt. And, you know, the thing is that they really wanted Linda to be, like, the star of the show. And they didn't really care about Kenny or Bobby. So, and, you know, it's just just interesting because, I mean, a lot of times they would book recording sessions and Kenny and Bobby didn't even, weren't even aware of it. You know, and they just had Linda. So, I mean, again, this was before the internet. So, for for all the public would have known, I mean, Kenny and Bobby were the musicians on different drum, which they weren't. You know, so that's, that's the thing is, like, again, again, this is before the internet, before people really even knew about studio musicians. I mean, you know, people didn't know that they, Kenny and Bobby weren't on these sections because they saw their their faces are on the album cover of, you know, Evergreen Volume 2, which is the album that this song is on. So a lot of people assume that they were on the session for Different Drum, but they weren't. So, yeah, that's your, that's, hope you know, I hope you didn't know that already, but that's just, you know, thing is about um, Linda Ronstadt is that, you know, you know, she had star power very early on, and then she hooked up with Peter Asher and Warner Brothers in the 70s, and, you know, she did You're No Good, and When Will I Be Loved, and It's So Easy. I mean, she was, she, she was sent in the stratosphere in the, in the, in the 70s. I mean, it was just unfreaking believable how big her career was after the Stone Ponies happened, you know. I mean, it's just, it's one of those things where it's like they were, they were so, you know, she, she, you know, she started out playing, you know, playing with the Stone Ponies and, you know, you know, singing different drum and a couple guys from the Eagles later went on to, uh, you know, were in the group first before, uh, you know, before uh, the Eagles even happened. But that's just so fascinating that before, you know, she was just in this group, you know, before anybody really even knew who she was. And uh, yeah, so um, hope you guys enjoyed that one. Hope you guys enjoyed this episode. So there you have it. That concludes episode number 162 and the final episode of 2021 of my 60 Music Podcast, Millennial Throwback Machine. I'm Sam Williams and rest in peace, Michael Nesmith. Um, you know, thanks for, you know, being part of one of the biggest groups of all time and 
you know, I, 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 to be honest with you, I, I, I got, I, I was a little bit older when I really discovered you because the monkey songs I grew up listening to were not the songs that he wrote, but I, I digged into them. It's funny. The monkeys were actually one of the very first groups, sixties groups that kind of digged into. I, I listened to a lot of their album cuts and this is pre Spotify before we even really got into like, you know, really digging into a group. The monkeys are one of the first groups where I was like, okay, I know the hits, but what are what are the what are the, what does their other music sound like? I mean, I watched some of the show, wasn't too crazy about it, but the 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 music intrigued me, and I I think there had to been some more good songs besides like you know their you know their hits, and I, I dug into a lot of their other songs, um, you know their album cuts, and you know that's how I heard Michael Nesbeth music. Um, again. Didn't happen when I was young, but when I got a little bit older, I dug into them quite a bit. But anyways, um, uh, if you find out some really fascinating information about uh, this week's song, an artist you never knew anything about, never knew about the Linda Ronzak connection, you're like, wow, this is amazing. And I love you know hearing about the story behind the song, hearing about Michael Nesmith. And uh, yeah, and by the way, Michael Nesmith, you know, he explored that. He really went full-blown country, bluegrass, folk thing after the Monkees. I mean, he formed their first national band, had a big hit with the song, Joanne, and that was that was all country music, folk. That's all. That's all. That's basically what it was. But anyways, um, if you enjoyed it and uh, you, know, you learned a lot of cool things about it, you never knew anything about it, about this group, please email me at samltwilliamicloud.com. You can also reach out to me on Instagram at iheartoldies. And you can check out the, the things that are normally... In the description of this podcast, which includes um, uh, the, uh, the the EP you put out this year. We'd love it if you guys could go listen to that and let me know what you think about it. We'd love to hear your thoughts on the songs. I love the songs so much. And uh, one of these days, you'll have to come to one of my shows to see and hear me do those songs live. Now, I will let you in on this. There's a chance that I might be playing another full band show again, doing my own music. I haven't done that since before the pre-podcast days, so... You're definitely going to have to come to one of those shows at some point, but that might be happening soon. We'll see. Um, but anyways, um, you know, uh, if you if you liked uh, these these songs or if you if you if you if you if you like the song, you never heard it before. You learned so much about it from listening to this episode's podcast. Please email me, email me at samltwoodcloud.com. You can also reach out to me on Instagram at iheartoldies. Please check out my EP we put out this year. I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. Please email me what you think of the song, samltwoodcloud.com. And you can also check out uh, the two interviews I did this year with Honk Magazine, Shout Out LA. That was that was great. That was one of the highlights of my year, to be honest with you. Getting getting those getting those interviews and getting written up about in those magazines and being you know having them approach me and you know just you know them being interested in me and what I do and having and you know getting to share my story with them is was really a great experience for me. Hope you hope you guys learned a lot about me from from reading those interviews and uh, hopefully I'll do more soon. And another great experience that for me this year that I did was sh- shoot and record my first official music video, uh, you know, for Sam L. Williams, uh, the Keeper in My Back Pocket song. I love that song so much. The music video was un freaking believable. I love the music video for that song. The music video was awesome. It was really, really good. Um, if you like that song or if you like the music video, um, you know, you can check that out in the description of the episode of this podcast. I'd love to hear what you think of that music video. Uh, please email me when you've watched it or DM me on Instagram. You can reach out to me on there um, at iHeartOldies or email me at samlc.com. Uh, 
And other other thing you can check out is the official Spotify and YouTube playlist for this podcast. Now, again, there, another reason why I have these those playlists up is because I only play a little bit of each song each week. So if you want to hear the whole thing, you got to go on this playlist. If you have Spotify or YouTube, you can check them out. Um, but it also should give you an idea for the kind of songs to talk about a show. And uh, we'll ultimately sort of uh, give you give you some ideas for songs to talk about next time podcast and have yet. And if if any if, if if it does, please email those ideas to me at cmltwicloud.com, or you can also reach out to me on Instagram. I always love if you can do that. Um, and uh, you know you can also check out the official Red Bull merch store for this podcast. And you know, and this is this is why I need your help, guys. So. If you know, if I, I I plug, I've been plugging my Red Bull merch store for a while. But seriously, I would love it if you guys could could you know at least contribute something to it, purchase one thing from it or a couple. I mean, again, all all I need all the help I can get right now from finance from my finances for this podcast. So if you can, love it if you can purchase something from there. Um, the link to that in the description is episode of this podcast. Um, please email me what you think of the logo and also the price of each item in the store at Sam. LTWICloud.com. More importantly, I would love if you can just contribute and just, you know, support the show by buying something from it because I really need that right now. But yeah, so, and I have another, I have another design up, Turquoise Ipricot merch that's also up there too. You can check that out as well. So yeah, so, um, again, uh, this has been a great year for me doing this podcast. I mean, I, I wish I could have done more interview episodes, but that, the first one of this year was amazing. Steve Boone, whew. Man, that was awesome. I'm I'm very very that I mean that was the hit interview of for me doing this podcast this year. But luckily we got 2022 and the first couple of interviews of, of next year are going to happen pretty damn soon. And uh and again, I'm hoping that you know I can raise some funds for this show so that way I can keep doing it cuz this is something I'll need moving forward with me doing this podcast. So um cuz I would love to switch to a different host, but I don't want to lose any of my listener data, so um, I'm kind of stuck with that with the one I have right now. So we really appreciate your guys' help with that. So, um, again, this has been a fantastic year, four years of me doing the show in 20, starting 2022. It's amazing. Cause there's so many other songs that I haven't talked about yet in the show. So much to get to. And, you know, it's just, there's so much more to talk about. And, you know, there's so many things I haven't even mentioned yet. Uh, you know, there's just so much more areas to cover, so many different things that I haven't even gotten even remotely close to diving into yet. I mean, this is like, this is going to be insane. And, uh, you know, in the meantime, I'm going to prepare for hopefully first couple episodes here are going to be those two new interview episodes. We'll see. But I mean, I mean, I'm playing those out right now as we speak, but I'm going to wait till after the holidays before I kind of get settled with that. So might be the first couple episodes of the new year, but we'll see. I'll, 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 I'll get that straightened out pretty soon. I'll get that figured out. But anyways, I'm very looking forward to that. And uh, I'm Brooks Arthur. Oh, my God, that's going to be so good. <laughs> All those records he recorded and just that whole scene he was involved with the Brill Building in New York. Oh, my God, that's going to be so good. And, of course, talking to those couple guys from 19 Fugum County, it's going to be interesting because we're going to dive into that because that's another New York thing totally kind of different scene but still kind of interesting one to dive into um you know because i have a feeling that there might be you know there might be some they, they might have not felt comfortable being in that band but we'll talk more about that when i interview them but anyways um so um i'm sam williams and thank you guys for joining me for this week's episode of this podcast and we'll need a throwback machine thank you guys for listening to the show all year and continuing to support it let's you know go to year five of i mean sorry year four of me doing this podcast starting 
in 2022. And let's do this. Let's cover more songs. Let's have some more fun. And until next week and next, I mean, actually, until next year, please keep things groovy. <laughs>